This is the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm J.D. Pirtle. In Carl Sandburg's poem, Chicago, the poet, upon hearing that the city is wicked, crooked, and brutal, absorbs these criticisms and acknowledges their truth from his own experience. But for, quote, those who sneer at my city, Sandberg challenges, come and show me another city with lifted heads singing so proud to be alive and coarse and strong and cunning. Sandberg describes a vibrant city with so much good and evil, extremes of both joy and suffering. The poem was first published in 1914, and over 100 years later, Chicago is still a place of those extremes, and many more. Our guest today is a lifelong Chicagoan who has experienced those extremes firsthand. In September, Nora Flanagan will begin her 23rd year as an educator in Chicago. She will confront the challenging pedagogical circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic, the troubling and precarious political circumstances of the United States, and the immense struggle Chicago public school teachers have had getting support and resources they need from the community. Nora is co-author of Confronting White Nationalism in Schools, a Toolkit, a free framework to identify, prevent, and thwart white nationalism in schools and many types of organizations. She teaches English at Northside College Prep, a selective enrollment public high school in Chicago's North Park neighborhood. Nora also serves as a delegate to the Chicago Teachers Union. So, Nora, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's really a pleasure to sit down with you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. So I, I thought we'd start maybe just, you know, um, during normal times, not during this this hellscape. <laughs> I keep calling it the pandemic. I mean, wh- where do you teach? You know, um, you're, you're a Chicago public schools teacher. So if you could just give us kind of like a, um, like a background of what you teach, where you teach um, during normal times. So uh, I just finished up. Uh, my 22nd year teaching high school English in Chicago. I teach at Northside College Prep. Uh, Previously, I also taught at Lane Tech. Um, And one of the unique things about both of those schools is that they draw from all over Chicago, which is specifically my favorite thing about teaching at those schools. Um, Those are both selective enrollment schools, and I get a lot of really kind of thinly veiled approval from people for teaching at selective enrollment schools. It's not the test scores that I love. I love teaching students from every imaginable part of Chicago because I've, I've lived on all three sides of Chicago. I'm from the South side. Uh, I bought my first house on the West side and now I live on the North side. And so I, I love all of Chicago and I love teaching all of its students. Uh, so I just finished my 22nd year. Um, and it was arguably the hardest year of teaching ever. Um, so in normal times, yes, I, I'm a high school teacher, but in now times, it's so much more. Right. Um, you know, I think about my English teachers and 
I mean, maybe it was just because of the student I was, but my English teachers, it almost felt like a homeroom for me because it was a place where I could like, you know, we could talk about books. We ended up having more conversations about what were, what was happening in the world at the time, Mm. um, than in even like my social studies classes. And I don't know if it was just because of the nature of English teachers and the people who choose that, that path or the nature of literature and poetry that makes you in that mindset. But I think uh, it's, I think it's a a little of a, I think it's a lot of a few things. I think that a lot of times the English classroom is the feelings room because mm -hmm. I mean, we, we do have a lot of conversations about these human experiences and human emotions. Um, but I think that happens across the humanities and into the social sciences. I mean, I have some social science colleagues that their classroom spaces, both physical and virtual are, are very strong, comfortable spaces for students. But I would point out the trope in movies and TV shows is the magical English teacher. It's Mm. whenever you have that like coming of age story of a, a struggling kid it's always the English teacher, man. Loans him a copy of right. Catcher in the Rye and everything, you know, changes from there. I both, right. lo- I both love and hate that trope so much. Sure. Um, if you could, ba- if we could back up just for a second. So for sure. our non, I think uh, all Chicago parents and Chicago public school teachers are familiar with the selective enrollment system. But for people outside of Chicago and who don't have children or just haven't paid attention, um, could you just describe kind of what selective enrollment schools are and the process to get into one? Sure. Uh, the nuts and bolts of the selective enrollment system are what a lot of other cities know as, as magnet schools, where a student's grades and test scores determine their eligibility for a seat. Mm-hmm. Um, in Chicago, these selective enrollment schools have been around for a while, which is great because there are more of them. Um, you know, several have opened up over several new ones have opened up in the last decade. Um, but at the same time, the longer the system's been around, the more some parents have found ways to game that system. Mm-hmm. It, it, I feel like every time they tweak the admissions process, folks with enough resources find a way to, to game it, um, which it is unfortunate. However, these, these schools still offer a really challenging education to students from all over the city. And I don't think we would argue that Every student in Chicago deserves that opportunity. Uh, I wish we had five times as many high schools like mine. Um, Mm -hmm. But until we solve a lot of huge problems with education in Chicago, it's a start and it's made a huge difference for a lot of students. Sure. So I guess the like kind of back to what you were saying at the the beginning um, of our conversation where, you know, like with Northside College Prep, you are getting a good cross section of, I mean, the kids who are able to, I mean, my son just went through the whole selective enrollment process and and now is happily at Whitney Young, but for the kids who are able to achieve those scores in the, like out of 900, I think you do end up getting a good cross section of kids socioeconomically, um, geographically from the city, as -hmm. opposed to like, you might have some North side, um, or near North schools where they're really funded, really well funded. There's the friends of, you know, whatever the school name is, where the parents are able to funnel a lot of money into the school. And then maybe in some other areas, they're not as well-funded. So there's a disparate, you know, kind of a disparate quality to like how well-funded the schools are and things like that. Sure. Um, in, sure. The reg- in the regular public schools. And, uh, uh I mean, I, are you from Chicago? Look at me. I'm, I'm spinning things. I'm asking you questions. Are you from no, Chicago? No, no, take over the interview. I'm, I'm a big, big <laughs> fan of that. Um, no, I'm actually, I'm actually from Tennessee via Seattle to here, but I've been here for 11 years. So okay. I'm like, I'm, I've been here long enough to know more 
I should know more than I actually know, I think. Well, I mean, we'll claim you 11 years. Like I say like a decade is the minimum, but 11 years, we're going to claim you as ours. So, um, being from Chicago and having lived on different sides of the city, I mean, this Chicago is segregated on purpose, especially in its schools. I mean, the history Mm -hmm. of education in Chicago is kind of staggering. I thought I knew it. I've always thought I, I, I knew about schools in Chicago and the older I get, the more I realize I have never really known a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. for starters, if you have not yet read, uh, Eve Ewing's book, Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Mm -hmm. that is a must read for anyone with any contact with schools in Chicago. Another great one as a Southsider is Natalie Moore's book, The Southside. Um, both of those books address the history of, of housing and educational segregation in Chicago in a way that doesn't, I mean, it, 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 I definitely feel like those books kicked my ass as someone who thought I knew my city. Mm-hmm. Um, those are must reads. Uh, so when you realize how intentionally segregated our city has always been, especially with regard to schools, those little kind of chips in that structure that taken out by magnet programs and selective enrollment schools and, and getting students out of their neighborhoods and interacting with other other people from other parts of the city, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's not a fix, but it's a start. It's this tiny little slice of, of the so much that needs to be addressed in our city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, um, that, that was one of the appeals of Whitney Young for my son is that, you know, he could go to school with just kind of kids from all over the city. Again, it's the, you mm-hmm. know, the filter is, can you hit the mark to get into these schools? But, you know, aside from that small filter, you do have a wide diversity, um, you know, and one of the things, one of the things I like to point out to my students at Northside and to my students at Lane Tech before that, I mean, two different answers on on either of those tests they had to take, and they wouldn't be there. And mm-hmm. hundreds, maybe thousands of other students in Chicago might have been with a few different responses or a different grade in their eighth eighth grade algebra class. I mean, like it's. There is hard work put in by students who get into these schools, but there's also such an element of chance. And there's, there's such a tiny margin that gets one kid a seat and another kid not a seat. I mean, issues of equity in Chicago are, I mean, there are entire podcast series about those. So oh, yeah. working at a school like Northside and having worked at Lane Tech before that, which, funny thing, the reason I landed at Lane Tech was because as a Southsider, I didn't know schools on the North side. I was living along the blue line because I was a broke college student at UIC. Mm-hmm. And I, I literally looked for high schools to apply for student teaching that only required one CTA ride to get there mm-hmm. because I was so broke. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't have a car. I, I was worried I wouldn't be able to afford the transfers if I went to a school that was too far away. So I applied to student teach at, at Lane and they took me and then they hired me right out of student teaching. So I, I actually, I kind of stumbled into teaching at selective enrollment schools, which is weird. That's mm-hmm. weird to me. Um, but yeah, I feel like working at these schools, I'm, I'm both part of the problem and part of the solution at the same time in the same moment. Sure. And there is, I mean, I think another thing for the non-initiated, uh, you know, the non-Chicagoans, the non the people who are not familiar with CPS, there is a tier system that seeks to kind of mitigate um, the advantage that, I mean, so, you know, uh, obviously kids who are um, of means 
get test prep, they get all kinds of access to, um, you know, really expensive test prep that will help them get prepared for these, you know, cause one of the 300 points that you get in the 900 is your grades in seventh grade or eighth grade. I can't remember. Um, mm-hmm. but then the other aspect of this is the selective enrollment test and then the map test. And so the kids who, can afford test prep are getting, you know, sometimes years of prep. I I know one family that had their child in test prep for this since fifth grade, which seems excessive to me. Um, (laughs) Well, and piling on though, but piling on that we, we know that those tests don't actually measure what a kid knows or can do. It just measures how well a kid can perform on a test. Right. Yeah. So there's that, but I'm sorry, go on. Yeah. I was just going to say there is a tier system that, you know, like for example, if you, um, you know, you live in one area, you, you know, the, where you don't have as much access to these kind of, um, these test prep things, everything that costs, you know, a, a lot of money, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're very expensive. Um, you can get a lower score, a lower to- total score to, you know, give you a better chance to get into these schools. Um, yes. but I think that we find people are even gaming that, um, by trying to live in a different tier system and things oh, like that. Oh, they sure are. Um, I can say this now cause it was long enough ago and I'm not going to give any identifying details, but I used to we have found families claiming to live in abandoned buildings in on blocks of the city where no one lives and there are boards over the windows and the electricity got turned on three days before they registered for school. And like this happens if you have the means, I mean, we've built up this, this system to where, I mean, look at the college uh, admissions scandal nationwide Mm -hmm. that just broke. That story broke and students at Northside were just kind of like, well, yeah. I mean, when you build up the, the competition that with that level of intensity, there will always be people with the means and the kind of moral flexibility to justify doing anything. And what, what always bothered me about folks that game the system to get into these high schools is, I mean, they took a seat away from a kid that worked a lot harder to get it. And when we discover that someone has cheated, they don't necessarily get removed and we certainly don't get to replace them with a kid who should have had that seat in the first place. So it is a deeply flawed system. Um, But we have, I will say this, I'll plug somebody at CPS that I love. uh, uh, Dr. Swinney, who's the chief equity officer, Mm -hmm. is doing some really difficult, complicated, hard work to remedy a lot of these things. I, I love following what Dr. Swinney is doing. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, I think about like the fact that the kids, you know, the the wealthy kids who are gaming the system, I mean, really their fallback is the access to a private school. Yep. But the, the kids that they are robbing of that seat, their fallback is a neighborhood school, which may or may not be safe, may or may not, certainly would probably not be the same quality as one of the selective enrollment schools. Um, I mean, everything about it is is completely different. I mean, these kids who have the means are just going to end up going to one of our many private schools here. Right. Um, so it's really just horrible. Yeah. And I wish, I so many wishes. Um we should also, with the same energy, be pursuing better options for our kids' neighborhood schools. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I, I love the sustainable community schools efforts happening too. Granted, a lot of these efforts have have frozen right now because mm-hmm. all of our attention has been turned to supporting remote learning and addressing the equity issues there. But there are some really interesting. Uh, and promising efforts. A lot of them are anchored in the Chicago Teachers Union um, 
to address equity issues in schools. So once I feel like this is this is getting up there with uh, that the, all the phrases about in these uncertain times and these unpre- once this is all over, um, mm-hmm. man, I hope we get back to those efforts. I hope they don't get lost. Yeah, I mean, I think the big concern is will the gap between, you know, those who have and those who do not. And I mean, not even have and have nots, but those who the system is designed to suppress or keep down, will that be more severe? Will the gap be greater? I mean, I think that's really a huge concern and very valid. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things I want to ask you before we kind of get into that is, um, so last year you authored uh, Confronting White Nationalism in Schools, a toolkit. So I was just wondering if you could talk about that framework, like what motivated it, what incidents kind of led to you developing that and, 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 and just kind of talking us through that toolkit and what its effects have been kind of a year later. Sure. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking it might simultaneously sound unrelated to what we've been talking about and completely related to what we've been talking about. Absolutely. Um, so my involvement with that project also stemmed from where I grew up. I grew up on the far Southwest side in a a working class white neighborhood where in the eighties, there were a lot of racial tensions. And I don't mean in the usual sense. I mean, uh, Beverly and Mount Greenwood and the border suburb of Blue Island, um, were kind of the birthplace of the neo-Nazi skinhead movement in America, or, or Mm -hmm. at least, you know, the, the playpen, if you will. Uh, and it happened right in front of me when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. So um, that's how I became engaged in anti-racist work. Uh, and it, I stuck with it in my years in the Chicago punk scene um, because concerts were the main recruiting ground. You know, um, it, Recruiting into white nationalism pre-internet happened in person. It happened at arcades. It happened at concerts. It happened literally in parks. Um, now it's all online and, and the organizations that combat it have migrated accordingly. But at the time, a lot of it revolved around music and, and youth subcultures. So I did a lot of work around that, uh, tracking mm-hmm. white nationalist music. And then, um, when everything moved online, we found that the efforts became much more focused, uh, on not just finding kids in, uh, these, online subculture spaces, but then convincing them to recruit at school themselves. So the in-person angle moved to school. Mm. So you would recruit and, and kind of entice and initiate kids online. And then there was literally a playbook for how to bring it into your school space and find quote unquote, like-minded kids or equally vulnerable kids. Mm. So I became involved in thinking about how this impacts schools and, Let's just say post 2016, mm-hmm. uh, or we could even say uh, 2017. Really, I mean, was the year of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, and that's when a lot of America was forced to acknowledge that white nationalist groups were gaining ground uh, mm-hmm. and and becoming normalized uh, and and validated by the president. Mm-hmm. Um, that was when a group of educators we were talking at a at a, a fundraising event and we were all kind of lamenting that we we were trying and trying and trying, but every time there was an incident, everybody felt like they had to start over and reinvent mm-hmm. the wheel. So we, long story short, we decided to write a thing that schools, parents, administrators, social workers, faith group leaders um, 
coaches, anybody could take a look at if they thought something was getting a little weird in their youth space, uh, if they thought that this ideology was creeping in. So we wrote this toolkit and it has been much more well and widely received than we ever could have hoped, which is both great and terrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've been traveling and speaking and and helping train folks on it ever since for the past uh, year and a half. Wow. So, I mean, I think, I don't think it's hyperbolic. You alluded to this a little bit, but I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that Donald Trump has used his kind of bully pulpit to, I mean, you know, this, these movements have been simmering. I wouldn't say at the fringe, but Mm -hmm. kind of just kind of in shadows. Um, and I really feel like his rhetoric has just given voice to them, has validated them. Um, and I, I feel like at the same time, this is kind of, and I, I'm sure he didn't mean to do this, but the sunlight has kind of hit these groups and these movements. And like you said, we're all forced to, I mean, teachers and everyone else were forced to kind of confront the reality of it, even if we did kind of see it out of the corner of our, our eye. Um, it's true. It's true. Um, one thing though, that I'm incredibly grateful for both with my own project and in general is that there have been organizations watching it grow and, and who saw this coming and who have Mm -hmm. been ready to support efforts like the toolkit. We worked with, uh, the Western state center. That's who, uh, supported us and, and has published and promoted and helped train folks on the toolkit. There's also the SPL, the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, the Mm -hmm. Anti-Defamation League. There are these wonderful organizations that while many of us kind of had the luxury to clutch our pearls after the Unite the Right rally and say, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. These are groups that had every idea and have been ready to support projects like mine as as quickly as we can think of them. So in that respect, I mean, that there have been folks doing this work all along, we're very fortunate. Sure. I think that a lot of us have the privilege, like you said, of clutching our pearls. Like, I think that's what's interesting about, you know, the the very positive move from, you know, I am not a racist to I am anti-racist. And yeah. I, mean, I feel like this just just is one more toolkit or one more tool in our in our in our reservoir of tools to fight this. So I was could you just kind of like give us like an overview of like what some of the framework entails and, and what some of the tools are in it? Yeah. Um, so what we wanted was something that any stakeholder in a school community could pick up. And the word I keep using is flippable, like something they could flip through and find what they need. Um, And so we divided the sorts of scenarios that uh, teachers and students and admins and counselors encounter when white nationalist ideology starts popping up at school. And we we arranged them into five categories, uh, kind of of ascending severity, Mm -hmm. um, starting with something like anonymous graffiti. What do you do when just you discover someone has drawn a swastika on the bathroom wall all the way up to you have a student who is making clear that they are fully engaged with a white nationalist group and they are recruiting on campus. Uh, And the kind of in the middles uh, are things like a student citing a white nationalist podcaster in an essay in their uh, American history class. and, and these things happen. There's not a single example in the toolkit because we provide a lot of examples. There's not a single example that hasn't either happened at a school where I've taught or only one degree of separation away, like a, a teacher friend of mine or one of my co-authors has seen. Um, so these are all, none of these are far-fetched. They have really happened, most mm. of them more than once. Uh, and so what we do for each uh, scenario, each category is... Um, 
here's, you know, here's your first steps. Here's how to engage other people. Here's your next steps. Here's how to get more resources. Here's what not to do. Uh, and here are a couple success stories of actual schools and classrooms and, and, and people who have responded and had good results because otherwise it, it's all pretty theoretical. Here's what we think will work. No, these are, these are methods that folks have used and seen success with. So the, we thought that was important. There are also some supplementary sections. Um, oh man, <laughs> my favorite one to write was the five common defenses of white nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, that was cathartic. That's the, you know, the people who try to talk to you about reverse racism or racism's over. Uh, And then we did, so there was such a demand for the toolkit that we had to do, we did a second edition. um, Mm -hmm. And we had to add a section about what to do when white nationalism comes from a staff member. Mm. We had originally talked about having that section and then we thought, no, that's not, that doesn't really happen, does it? Oh, it sure does. Um, often enough that we had to add it to the toolkit. So, and then we have additional resources and some some media stories about how schools have successfully addressed these issues. Um, we define a lot of terms. For a little, it's about 50 pages long. For a little 50-page booklet, it covers a lot of ground, but we wanted to keep it accessibly brief. Sure. Uh, we didn't, we didn't want to write a big book that no one would use. And it was also really important to us to have physical copies because we know in schools... A lot of times a principal wants something they can hold in their hand. And teachers, we get a lot of rambling PDFs in our inbox that we never look at. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, physical copies can be ordered from the Western State Center, but everyone can get a free PDF by going to westernstatecenter.org schools. Mm-hmm. And it is a downloadable PDF. That's great. Yeah, I'll definitely put that in the show notes so people can click on that. Cool. Um, so changing gears a little bit. Um, so I just wondered if you could give us kind of your, your, what your perspective was as the pandemic kind of, obviously it was in Washington state, it was in New York. Um, when it finally seemed like it was coming here and schools went remote, both public and private, how, um, how did that go? I mean, how, what was your feeling about it? I mean, obviously the, there's a, a degree of mourning. I'm sure as a teacher, you didn't get into it for the money. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, I mean, teaching remote, remotely, I think, is a necessary evil, and it's certainly not what any of us prefer. Okay. So first, uh, I cried. Mm-hmm. The day that school closed down, I came home. I talked to my sons. I have a son who is now going to be starting high school in the fall, and I have a, another son who will be going to fifth grade. Um, but I talked to my sons. Um, we did what everyone did, you know, because school shutting down is – we can see with the push for schools to reopen – Schools closing or being opened are such a signal to the entire country as to how things are going. Mm-hmm. So like it was when schools started shutting down, that's when there were the runs on the grocery stores. I mean, that's it was that signal that really and we saw kind of another um, uh, another round of it when schools started calling it for the rest of the year. Like mm-hmm. I feel like that was a signal to a lot of people. So once we made sure we had food and necessities and that my sons understood what was going on. And I had, uh, structured work for my students. I'll come back to that. Cause that's actually proven more important than I thought. Um, but anyway, that night, the night that schools closed, I sat in my room and cried, um, and just tried to process like what was happening. Cause it was so upsetting to leave my students that day and 
genuinely not know when I was going to see them again. I knew it wasn't going to be two weeks. Um, I knew that. And just this, this uncertainty. And I was upset and not just for my, it wasn't for myself. It was knowing that a lot of my students might be stuck at home where they feel less safe. And I know a lot of my students need to see other people to kind of balance out what they deal with. Um, I'm the faculty sponsor of our school's Gay Straight Alliance. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know a lot of our LGBTQ plus students, the idea of being home and literally not being able to leave the house for weeks or months was terrifying to them. Mm-hmm. So it just, that first day or two, it was just so much to bear. Um, but at the same time, it was time to get to work. Um, what a lot of us did for that initial delusional two-week shutdown was we designed what teachers call asynchronous learning, as in here is a task list you're going to work your way through over the next two weeks at your own pace. Here's a high-tech version of it. Here's a low-tech version of it. You know, Here's a hard copy if you don't have a printer. Like We made as many allowances as we could with that. I don't know if you remember, our, the last day of school for CPS was a Monday. So teachers mm-hmm. had that weekend to design and and prep and print and and assemble anything they thought anybody might need. So I had copies of books, packets, uh, everything. Uh, and the whole idea was no matter what your situation is, no matter what part of the city you're in, no matter uh, your tech access, you can engage with what we're doing for the next two, three weeks. So that's called asynchronous learning. And fast forward a lot, and we're actually coming back to that idea as much as we can. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I feel like once it was called for the year and everybody started scheduling their um, live instruction, um, we put a little too much stock in those Google Meets. Like we, we really thought everybody could be there and that's how good teaching would happen. And now with this summer, with time and a little more breathing room to think about what really works, we need both and more. We need synchronous and asynchronous learning. We need students to be able to self-pace. We need uh, flexible tech options. Um, We need so much more complexity than just, well, meet me online every Tuesday at 10 a.m. and school will happen. Um, So I am, I don't know about everybody else, but I'm spending the entire month of August learning how to do that better. Sure. So that kind of leads to, I mean, I feel like, I mean, every school, I mean, obviously I think I, you know, a lot of the private schools that I, I work with and, and I'm familiar with, they were able to kind of go to this, you know, synchronous learning model because they had the tech infrastructure. Mm-hmm. They knew that all the families um, had internet access. I mean, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, a lot of CPS students don't have a device. They weren't able to get a Chromebook or whatever this, you know, um, CPS was going to distribute to them. You know, the, these are a lot of students rely on school for to have a safe place to go, um, to have food to eat. I mean, there's a lot more than just um, kind of, you know, did we do blended or flipped classroom? You know, there those kind of decisions that were being made. So, you know, this summer I've kind of watched as a CPS parent and as a teacher, uh, you know, I watched CPS propose a plan and then change gears completely. And then the reasons they gave for why they changed gears may or may not be the actual reason. So I was just wondering if you could, you know, as a member of the union, as, as a CPS teacher, like what has your impression been of that? I mean, it seems like you guys could have had a lot more time to plan for the year had you known it was going to be a remote or had there been some um, transparency in the decision making. 
oh my gosh, there's, there's so much we need to talk about here. So, so from the beginning, um, those, those, those complex needs, um, again, everything from tech access to food. And then of course we had, we have students whose parents are losing their jobs every day. We have Mm -hmm. students who are experiencing housing insecurity all the time, um, all the time pre-pandemic, but certainly now at a, at a, at a level that I don't know that we've, I mean, I, have we, has the data determined that this is more than in 2008, as far as people losing their housing? I'm not sure. Have we hit that point yet? Do you know? I, I'm not sure if we have, but I feel like we certainly will, especially and, you know, as we're recording this, there's still no deal, um, between Congress and the white house for continuing, um, the additional unemployment aid, um, mm-hmm. and, and the measures that have, you know, if you could call them that have been taken are not sufficient or even real. Um, so I'm sure we will be hitting that if we haven't already. But when, and so when we look back to the Chicago Teachers Union strike that happened in October of 2019, one of the demands that we heard was not our business was when we were fighting for more protections and supports for the 15 to 20,000 students experiencing homelessness, Mm -hmm. uh, students in what we call students in transitional living situations, because by, uh, by educational standards, being what we call doubled up, for example, uh, a family who has lost their apartment or their home and is staying with relatives. That is a student in a transitional living situation. That counts as what we would refer to as homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think when we shared with the city that, hey, we have at any given time 15 to 20,000 CPS students experiencing homelessness, and we can't talk about how to support our schools without incorporating that issue, um, we got a lot of pushback that that wasn't, mm-hmm. that wasn't the teachers union's place. Um, I, I hate that it took a pandemic to prove our point, but it sure is our place to make sure that our students have resources and supports and food and basic necessities. Um, there have been a lot of mutual aid efforts put together by schools and teachers, um, food drives, my own school, had a food drive going every Tuesday in our uh, auxiliary parking lot that would mm-hmm. then would bring all the resources to our neighborhood food pantry, uh, which was desperately needed at the time and still is. So, ooh, so okay, for, so for starters, there were all of these basic necessities that weren't being addressed and that teachers were demanding. So fast forward to the summer, because then you brought up, they announced a plan, but only sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, they said, we're going to have hybrid learning. And I will say this, when they started to design that plan, Illinois' numbers looked promising. The mm-hmm. uh, rates, of, rates of infection um, were going down. Illinois was killing it for a while there. We were doing great. And I admit, I, I was one of the people who thought, maybe we can do this. Maybe we can go hybrid. And as soon as, it's almost like a jinx, as soon as they started talking about it, Illinois uh, the numbers started to go up, uh, surrounding states. I mean, do we forget that we border Missouri, which is just a complete mess right now? Um, Indiana and Wisconsin, not great. Um, so things started to look scarier and scarier, but CPS like kind of doubled and tripled down on this hybrid plan, no matter what was happening to the numbers, no matter what other cities were concluding. And so, yup, uh, CTU started making a lot of noise about it because, 
oh my gosh, so many becauses. Uh, and, and not even at the top of the list for me was my own safety. It was mm-hmm. that I know, especially with a lot of families doubling up or families that already live in multi-generation households, we were going to kill people. Um, we were going to, we were going to sp- spread COVID-19 and k- k- kill students, family members or, or students. Um, so, but CPS was like, nope, we're, we're doing it. Kids need school. So they started having these community meetings via Zoom. Mm-hmm. And man, did those not go how they wanted them to. Uh, they, <laughs> they gave surveys at the start and end. And, and I, I saw screenshots of, of the, the survey results from the first couple of meetings. So like the first one, I might be off by a percent or two, but probably not. Uh, it was like 68% of students were, or of parents, excuse me, were either very uncomfortable or uncomfortable with the idea of sending their kids into the building. And then at the end of the meeting, after the sales pitch, it had moved by like 1%. Mm-hmm. Like they hadn't gained any ground. And only f- at the first meeting, only 5% of parents were very comfortable sending their kid into the building. And once they aggregated that data for uh, further and, and found that, no, it's, it's um, Black and Latinx parents especially are like, nope. And those are the communities being disproportionately impacted by COVID saying, we're not sending our kids in. What was it? 80% of Black and Latinx parents were saying no? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's 75 to 80% of our student population, mm-hmm. maybe even more. Um, so that didn't go how CPS expected. And they held a couple more of those meetings. They didn't even make it to the deadline by which parents had to say what they were going to do. Do you, do you remember that? Like we yeah, had until yeah. that Friday. Um, I didn't answer the survey. I, I don't know why I did. I knew I was going to keep my kids home. I just, as a parent, I hadn't answered yet because I was too involved in obsessively following all the news and, and hoping they came to their senses. And they did. Um, because so many parents were just saying, no, no, too scary. Not, this is not worth it. Remote learning sucks as a teacher and a parent. I'm, I'm saying that I'm, I'm mm-hmm. on record, literally on record saying it sucks, man. It's better than death. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I mean, definitely when we moved from phase three to phase four in Chicago mm-hmm. in Illinois in general, the cases went up when it got warmer, um, mm-hmm. The cases went up. The political, you know, war against wearing a mask—the um, most simple thing that we can do to help others and help ourselves—just intensified. Um, the lack of any kind of federal uh, coordinated, I mean, plan at all, really. Yeah. Um, but what really bothered me as a teacher and as a CPS parent, and as one of the CPS parents who supports the teachers—I mean, when you, you guys went on strike last year, I was 100% in support of you. Um, and it really is disheartening and, you know, fairly disgusting to me to see the criticism of the CTU of the Chicago Teachers Union um, and the criticisms of the teachers. I mean, the, the kind of the rhetoric about why CPS changed gears on this was that you guys were going to vote to strike. They did not say, I mean, you know, the, you know, the periodicals, the papers around here, the criticism on Twitter from the parents, it was nothing about like the survey results that you just t- talked about. It yep. was all about, you know, that you guys might strike. Um, you know, the, just these terrible things like talking about, you know, teachers wanting a vacation. Oh, you know, we're, the the, worst. I mean, we're the worst. We're the worst. Yeah. Who is, oh my gosh. Um, man, you know, Paul Vallis came out of the woodwork and has like wrote like some sort of newspaper editorial about how terrible we are. Um, you know, maybe the, maybe it's lucky. It, maybe it's lucky that we were on strike just last fall and we're a little bit hardened to that rhetoric. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because I saw, I, I get, I saw it coming and I, first of all, a whole lot of the people that, that say that are not CPS parents. Right. Uh, a lot of them don't even live in Chicago. There is this amazing phenomenon of people in Schaumburg saying what Chicago needs, whether it's about mm-hmm. education or violence or the protests. It is amazing how strongly people in Naperville feel about Chicago. Um, people in Naperville should worry about Naperville and people in Schaumburg should worry about Schaumburg and mm-hmm. Chicago should listen to Chicago's parents. And Chicago's yeah. parents were saying, we don't want more people to die to prove a point that isn't true. Because I feel like we were, and certainly at the national level with the rhetoric from the White House and our completely ridiculous Secretary of Education, just mm-hmm. they just keep saying, well, just schools need to open. They just need to open. Um, and again, this is going back to what we said earlier about schools being such a indicator, such an indicator of of how are we doing? They really just thought they could push schools to open to prove we were beating COVID when we're not beating COVID. Right. They could just like will it to be true by sending kids into an unsafe situation. And the thing about being a teacher and the thing about being part of the Chicago Teachers Union, and I'm a delegate also, um, is that sometimes we have to put ourselves in the way of really bad ideas to protect our students and their families and our city. And that's what we were doing. So some some guy from the suburbs or somebody who doesn't have kids in CPS or some, I don't know, some anonymous internet troll who says we're greedy and lazy, it, that's fine. I can sleep at night with random suburban guy calling me lazy. I was not sleeping at night with the idea of going into the building and endangering my students and their families and my own family. Um, another, I will... I will share this. Another thing that really impacted me was in that same time, my 20-year-old niece who works in food service was hospitalized with COVID-related illness. Mm. And it happened, she got so sick so fast that she hadn't even received her initial COVID results back from CVS Pharmacy before she was hospitalized with double pneumonia. Oh my God. She's fine. She's fine. She's on the mend. Uh, but watching how fast that happened and how sick she got and how she doesn't even have allergies. There's no, no other thing. She just got really sick really fast. I think that kind of drove it home for me how urgent it was that we stop CPS and this idea that we could just go into school and hope for the best because we were going to kill people. So the Chicago Teachers Union might draw fire from people like Paul Vallis and again, random suburban folks or folks that don't invest and engage regularly in making our city better and making our schools better, that's okay. I, I, it's irritating and it can sometimes feel a little disheartening, but I don't know. We're used to picking good fights for the sake of our students and we'll keep doing it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the CPS teachers, the teachers in general, I know, but the CPS teachers also, and especially like, I mean, I don't know if anybody wants to go back to in-person school more than you guys do. Oh, I miss it so much. I miss, I miss being in a classroom and I miss students and I miss, I miss my job so much. Yes. Sorry. I interrupted you because you said something feelingsy. Yes. I miss, I want to go back to school so much, but not, not until it's safe. I I think that like, I, I keep coming back to this being a situation where there is no winner. Nobody's going to win from this. There's no great solution. But at the very least, the efforts you guys made in the union were to 
get CPS to start listening to this and start thinking about this. And, you know, uh, the solution to go all remote is just like a necessary evil, really. It's not anything that anybody wants, but mm -hmm. at least we're going to like potentially save some lives. And those, those communities that are disproportionately affected by this, I mean, at the beginning of the conversation, you talked about, you know, this system that is designed you know, to, to keep some people out and help some people get in. I mean, those are the communities that are also being disproportionately affected by this. So, yep. yeah, I mean, it's, well, and so you mentioned also the, the weird chain of events that led to the announcement of going all remote. Um, mm -hmm. that was a strange day and there's screenshots of two news stories breaking on line. I think it was on Twitter where <laughs> at one point it was, Hey, there's word that the Chicago Teachers Union might be meeting to talk about maybe striking. And then 20 minutes later, hey, CPS is going to announce we're all remote. I, I can't tell you what happened that afternoon and evening. I just know it happened really fast. I know that the Chicago Teachers Union was getting to the point where we were starting to say, okay, are, are we willing to do this for our city and for our students and for their families? How far are we willing to take this fight? Um, but at the same time, I mean, the science was becoming abundantly clear. Now, the mayor and CPS saying that the union had nothing to do with it, I think that's just silly. But, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I don't think it was all us. Um, I'll, I'll say this, though. The second it was announced that we were all remote, the online spaces occupied by Chicago teachers just exploded with, okay, give me your best Google Classroom tutorials. Where are the good PDs? How can we all get on there? And we could have been doing that all summer, but at least we're doing that for the entire month of August. And man, teachers just jumped and hustled. And my calendar is next week is almost all PD sessions. I've got a couple of this week. Um, and we've been learning all along, you know, how to do remote learning better. Uh, but now that we know that that's where we can put all of our attention and energy instead of, uh, reading face shield reviews and figuring out how not to go anywhere near a child. Um, I think that a lot of teachers finally feel like we get to think about doing our jobs again differently, but we get to think about it. I just contributed to, um, a book, a little, another kind of short book about, teachers increasing and improving their presence in online meetings uh, mm. and how teachers can uh, look and sound uh, and be more effective and confident online. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because a lot, a lot of us jumped onto these Google Meets for the first time. And uh, I, I love my kids' teachers, but I was looking up their noses for a lot of <laughs> classes or there were technical problems or there was, you know, uh, cameras were placed oddly or it was dark. A lot of teachers are just focusing on how to present better online. And so, so that's, that's how we're using our time, trying to do better for our students and then thinking about these things like asynchronous learning and how can we have students collaborate in online spaces and how does, how does work look and happen differently? How do discussions happen differently? There's also great and important conversations happening right now about how initially a lot of teachers really felt like their students had to have their cameras on for it to be like school. Thank mm -hmm. goodness there are more thoughtful and sensitive conversations happening around that and all the reasons why it's totally okay to teach to a screen full of avatars. It, it requires a little adjustment, but it's going to be okay. 
Um, there's just so much energy and effort right now going into doing remote learning better. And it's, it's stressful and it's hectic, but man, I feel like I could breathe again. Yeah, I think that people don't realize just how much planning teachers do. I mean, I feel like they, the, the presence in class and instruction is just the tip of the iceberg and the planning is just kind of a 24-hour-a-day thing. Um, yes. So I mentioned earlier that this is going to be my, this fall will start my 23rd year in the classroom. We all feel like first year teachers again, all of us. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I generally feel pretty competent at what I do. Always looking for ways to improve, always changing what I teach and how, but I feel like a first year teacher again. I feel like I'm like figuring <laughs> everything's just square one. Um, And it's exciting because we're doing it for our students, but it is exhausting. And we're also doing it during a pandemic and during a social Mm -hmm. uprising and during uh, an election year that is bananas. So last summer, we were all preparing for the possibility of a strike. I I don't want to speak for all the teachers in Chicago, but I know I speak for a lot of us when I say, at some point, we're going to get a rest. (laughs) It hasn't happened yet. Uh, this idea that we're just chilling at home, very inaccurate. We're all pretty exhausted, but it's worth it. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say I appreciate what you do for your students and what you do for Chicago. And Nora, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh my gosh, me too, JD. Uh, this is a lot of what we've talked about. I've, I've chatted with friends about and I've checked in with colleagues about, but sitting here and, and talking like start to finish what this has been like has actually been really helpful and therapeutic and perspective giving. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I think we all need a catharsis or several right now. <laughs> um, well, I will make sure and put in um, where they can find the toolkit and uh, your Twitter handle and everything in the show notes. But thank you so much for what you do and good luck at the beginning of this very interesting school year. Thank you. Good luck to you and your family. Thank you for listening to the Depth and Light podcast. Special thanks to Nora Flanagan for taking the time to talk to me today. The Depth and Light podcast is produced in its entirety by me, J.D. Pirtle, including original music. If you have show ideas or feedback, send us an email at info at depthandlight.com. <laughs>